Well, if they're marbles, there has to be a baby dedication. Like I said earlier, I believe that the person that came up with the idea of putting the marbles in the jar was a genius. Uh, we probably do that every year. It is such a dynamite reminder of how much time and how little time we get with parents with just our children. At some point, they're going to grow up and they're going to go away and they're going to do their own thing. So we have, our, we have our moment. Every child starts with parents that are full of hope, that have all kinds of ideas of joy for their little bundle of joy. Every parent believes that their child is the prettiest, their child is the handsomest, their, their child is the cutest, that their child is the most precious baby in the whole wide world. And that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. As parents dream, they think of the schools that their children are going to go to. They're going to think of the church that their child's going to attend. They're going to think of the career that the child might pursue. They're going to think of even the boy and the girl that their child might grow up to marry when they get older. In a nutshell, before the baby's ever born, the parents begin, the parents begin with the end in mind. Whether you're one of the parents that actually writes down goals for the child and has them numbered out in one and sub ABC, two ABC, or whether you're the parent that just has it in your mind, every parent begins with the end in mind. We want our children to grow up educated. We want our children to grow up respected and loved. We may not be super intentional about some of this stuff, but each parent in their own way has a plan to get their child to the place that they want their child to go. Logic and common sense demands that. We want our children to grow up to be educated, respected, and loved. That's what we want. So we bring our children to church with an end in mind that they learn who Jesus is, that they trust Jesus as their savior because we know Jesus we want to give Jesus away. We found Jesus. We know that they need Jesus. We want to give Jesus to them. We want to see them saved. We want to know that God forbid, should they pass before we do, that they're going to go to heaven and that we'll see them again one day. And we want to know that if life works like we want it to, and we pass before our children do, that that we will be in heaven waiting for them, that they will be there one day, and that God will be here on earth taking care of them each and every day. So on the day that they walk the aisle and they say that they trust Jesus as their Savior, we spike the ball, we check that off our list, we say that we're done. My kids have learned the Ten Commandments. They know what, how they're supposed to behave. They have repented of their sins, and God knows they have enough sins that they need to repent of, and they've brought me to a point that I've had to repent a couple of times of my sins because of them. We've all repented of our sins, and now we are saved, and we all belong to Jesus. Mission accomplished. We began with the end in mind, and here we are. Here's my premise this morning. Here's the premise of the message. That's not enough. It's not enough. Simply seeing your child saved isn't good enough. There is something more powerful, more necessary for your child than to simply trust Jesus as their Savior. And I want to tell you a little story this morning about myself, but I think that, I don't think, that's ridiculous to say, I think, I know 
that you're going to relate to this story. I absolutely know. And here's the deal. I know I got gray hair and that some of you don't have gray hair. And I know that some of you are teenagers and you're, and you're young or you're young men that have been in college and all this kind of stuff. If you listen to the story and you think you will see yourself in my story. I was born in Fort Leonard, Missouri. I was the son of a staff sergeant and a stay-at-home mom. Dad was discharged when I was three years old. We moved back to Austell, Georgia, where we lived near my great-grandparents, my grandparents, my aunts, and my uncles. There were no cousins in our little group because I was the oldest child. That made me special. I'm still special. I was raised at the Davis Chapel Baptist Church from the day we returned to Georgia until I was 25 years old. I have heard so many Sunday school lessons. I have heard hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Sunday school lessons. I saw flannel graph presentations, chalk talks, went to camp, I played ball, I went on hikes, I attended the RAs, I went to RA campouts, I attended Baptist training union, I attended training union, I attended discipleship training, whatever name we called that Sunday school thing that we did on Sunday nights, that was, I went to that. I even attended Bill Gothard's Institute Basic, now let's get it right, Bill Gothard's Institute for Basic Youth Conflicts at the Omni Arena in Atlanta when there was an Omni Arena in Atlanta. I did all of this. I was well-educated. I was well-schooled. I knew everything I was supposed to know. When I was 14 years old, I walked the aisle of Davis Chapel Baptist Church during a revival to, to declare that I had asked Jesus to be my savior, that I trusted him to save me. Now, just as a note to some of you folks, because I know how we operate, I was saved when I was 12. This kid who was in a rock and roll band as the lead singer, <laughs> it didn't last long, um, as was on stage, <laughs> I was on stage in all of these, in, in plays and loved to do stuff like that, was terrified to walk down the aisle of the church. Don't understand it, doesn't make good walking around sense, but I was. It took me two years to get up the nerve to walk down the aisle, but I did when I was 14 years old. I was baptized by Talmadge Chandler in the baptistry of the old Davis Chapel Baptist Church, and then it promptly burned down. I do not know if there was a correlation between the two or not, but it did kind of happen that way. Uh, shortly after that, I knew that I knew that I knew that I was called to be a pastor. And I say this, I say this today, I'm not saying it with, to, to prove any kind of humility, and I don't want anybody to say anything to me about it because it embarrasses me a bit, but, but I, I thought when I was called that I was a very unlikely candidate to be called to be a pastor. I still think I'm an unlikely candidate. He could have done a much better job picking people that knows more and all the kind of things that I think that a preacher ought to be, but here I am. And that's what he did. I have been told a million times, don't drink, don't cuss, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go out with girls that do. <laughs> I've been told a million times, you do not have sex before marriage. I've told a million times that anybody that drinks alcohol will turn into an alcoholic and ruin their lives. I have been told good boys don't cuss. 
I have been told that good boys always open the car doors. This is true, young ladies. Good boys always open the car doors for the girl. And if the girl won't let you open the car door, don't go out with her. Those are the things that I learned. I learned, I, I trusted Jesus as my Savior. I learned the Ten Commandments. I learned all of the rules. But none of that, none of that prepared me for tight sweaters, mini skirts, and black patent knee boots and hormones. None of it did. None of it prepared me for that. Didn't prepare you either, did it? Not a one of those things. The law did its job. It convicted me of sin. It let me know. For years, I walked around feeling guilty but it didn't stop me from doing what I did. It didn't stop me from sitting down and having my first flaming hurricane. And it did not stop me from desiring the sweater and the miniskirt that was having a flaming hurricane with me. It didn't do it. Do you remember something that I said a couple of weeks ago? Quoted a guy that was from Plato's era. And he said, let me write the songs of a nation. I care not who writes its laws. You remember that? Baby boomers, I'm going to embarrass you now. I don't know the modern songs. I don't dare bring up some of their lyrics because they're terrifying. But ours were bad enough. Do y'all remember the group, the Raspberries? <clears throat> y'all remember the Raspberries? Yeah, we remember the Raspberries. Yeah, in uh, 1972, I was a 10th grader. Their hit song was called Go All the Way. I wrote the lyrics down. I was going to read them out to everybody, and then I decided that I was going to get yeah, some Michaels going, don't you dare do that. <laughs> embarrass us to death. But think about this now. If I read them out loud in here, we'd be embarrassed to death, but in our car, we rock and roll to that song. And we heard them singing over and over again about that. In 1976, I was 20 years old, the Starland Vocal Band was there. They sang a song about afternoon delight. They were not talking about having a blizzard at Dairy Queen with your girlfriend. <clears throat> 1974, John Denver released a song called Annie's Song. I don't know if y'all remember that one or not. Hang on. <clears throat> Excuse me. Called Annie's Song. Uh, everybody after that had that in their weddings for the longest time. John Denver's song said, You fill up my senses like a night in the forest, like a mountain in springtime, like a walk in the rain, like a storm in the desert, like a crystal blue ocean. You fill up my senses. Come fill me again. Come let me love you. Let me give my life to you. Let me drown in your laughter. Let me die in your arms. Let me lay down beside you. Let me always be with you. Come let me love you. Come love me again. It's a gorgeous song that John Denver wrote for his precious wife, Annie, who he divorced. But for the longest time, that was such a beautiful song. Here I was, a love-starved, hormonal young man being told not to smoke, drink, cuss, have sex, or you'll ruin your life. And I heard that for a couple of hours every week in Sunday school, in church, in discipleship training, in a church service at night. Heard it all the time at church the other 166 hours of the week when I was awake, I was listening to these preachers. 
the Raspberries, the John Denver, the Starland Vocal Band, Led Zeppelin, the Moody Blues, and a whole host of other musical philosophers who all extolled the virtues of the male-female physical relationship and what that will do to give you fulfillment in your life. Now I wonder which message carried the greater weight. I wonder how many of us, well, I just wonder how many of us, you know? We weren't prepared. We were not prepared. It is not enough for your child to know that Jesus is their savior and to know the rules. It is not enough. And we've got the blocks up here. The blocks are up here for a reason. Uh, actually, there, there are nine blocks. I have a feeling that if you are beyond here, you can't see the ninth block. But there are nine blocks here. Uh, the blue block represents your child. The yellow blocks represent the light of God through the church. The red blocks represent the love of the family for the child. The orange blocks, red and yellow, make orange, right? Red and yellow make orange, so that is us working together so that your child will know Jesus as their Savior. Now, you're looking at this and you see, but you'll notice in the middle that there's, whoops, don't you fall over, that would be embarrassing. That there's a tunnel in the middle there. You can see a blue box blue block through that tunnel, but there is something missing there. When your daughter leaves home, your son goes to college, your son enters the workforce, your daughter enters the workforce, often they leave the church. 70% of all of our students, 70% will leave the church. 23% will never come back. We like to say in the church that, you know, they'll leave between the ages of 18 and 25. They'll leave, but once they have a little baby, whoo, they'll come running back because they want to raise their child like they know the child's supposed to be raised. Yeah, 23 of them will never come back. They are gone, boom, out of here. So we have them go off to work. They go away. When they go away, what happens? Well, you have the light of the church that falls out of their life. You have the light, the love of the family that no longer supports them. What happens to this in the middle? Does it just hover in the air? Of course not. It falls. It tumbles. They fail. See, the rules are incomplete. But in the back, there's another blue block. There's a foundational part that they need to understand and they need to know. And when that foundation is slid into place, you can pull all of this away and it still stands firm. That's what's missing is that thing that causes them to stay firm. Now, there are four things that we're going to talk about this morning. Four things we're going to talk about. Three of them will be review. One of them might be a review for some of you, but it probably might be new to a number of you. There are four things, okay? So get ready. We're going to go through them pretty quickly. Number one, we have to teach our children that there is a God who is real, who is powerful, and who has the right to rule over our lives. Logan read 
from Deuteronomy about how we're supposed to tell these things to our children. Psalm 78 says we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. This means that moms and dads, grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncles, and cousins, you need to know the glorious deeds of the Lord in your own life that you need to have experienced the Lord in your life and then not be shy about telling that to your children. And if you look back on your life and you think, well, I don't really see the Lord working in my life, then you need to stop and have that moment to look back and say, am I real or am I just saying something? Because I know that the Lord has moved in my life. I know that the Lord will move in your life, that he's done things in your life. You need to be able to explain that to your children. They need to know that God is wiser, more knowledgeable, more loving, more kind, more compassionate, more merciful, more powerful, that he's more demanding, that he's more just, that he is more jealous for us than anyone or anything else in the entire universe. They need to know that there is a God who has a right over their lives. They need to understand that. That's number one. Number two is we have to teach them what God said. They need to know the Ten Commandments, but they need to know the Ten Commandments for the right reason. And they need to study the Old Testament, but they need to, under, old, they need to study the Old Testament for the right reason. The purpose of the law is not to show you how to live so that you can please God. The ten, purpose of the Ten Commandments is to show you that no matter how hard you try, you will never be able to please God. That no matter how hard you try and how hard you work, Paul says that I would not have known what coveting was until I, until I read the law and the law told me what coveting was and I realized when I learned it that I was already doing it. Oh, whoa, what can save me? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, he says. We understand the law, the purpose of the law is to teach us what sin is and the purpose of studying the Old Testament is so that we can understand the price that has to be paid for that sin. J.D. Greer is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention and he is the pastor of the Summit Church in uh, Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. I listened to him on podcast. He talked about in a sermon, he was a... Uh, a missionary somewhere in the east. He went to a worship service for this particular religion. He didn't name what the religion was, but they still do animal sacrifices in the 21st century. They still do animal sacrifices. Sounds crazy, right? But they do. And at this worship service, they had to sacrifice a bull. Now we see in the Bible where it talks about sacrificing bulls and lambs and and sheep and birds and all these things. So he is seeing what the Old Testament talked about. Y'all know what a bull is? Y'all, help me out here. I need a little nod at head here to let you know you're still awake and with me. You know what a bull is? Yes, I gotcha. Hallelujah. I got a bull. They're big. Have y'all ever noticed that? I mean, you drive by. Uh, uh, you go up 129 Eatonton Highway and you look to the right and that guy over there has a whole bunch of cows and there's some bulls out there. Those puppies are big. 
And, and Greer said that he just hadn't thought about the fact that in order to sacrifice a bull, you've got to subdue that sucker. So it took a whole bunch of men to tie that boy up and then get that bull on the altar. And once they get the bull on the altar, then they take a knife and they slit its throat so that the blood comes out. And this is what he didn't think about. There's pressure in your body, right? And when they cut the animal's throat, he said the arterial spray went all over everybody, him included. He wasn't expecting that. Happy Mother's Day. I picked this out just for today. It, it went everywhere. And he said that he understood the picture of sacrifice and what a price Jesus paid for the penalty of our sin. That he had a picture of what that sacrifice was. Bible tells us that life is in the blood and that blood has to be spilt to make atonement for sin. And that's what Jesus did brings us to number three. Number three, we must teach our children their need for Jesus as their Savior. Romans 5, 8 says, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the sacrifice, the sacrifice provided for you and me and your children so that we could be saved. Jesus died for us because the Father loves us so much that while we were still rebels, while we were still listening to our musical philosophers and our teachers and we heard the siren song of sweaters and mini skirts and knee-high leather boots, while we were still sinners, before we had a clue that we needed anything, Jesus died for us now what kind of love is that he took a bullet for us before we even knew that anybody was shooting at us and when we hear that and we understand that and we understand our sinfulness and we realize that we need a savior when we understand our very limited capacity to to have enough wisdom to know how to live our lives and our inability to live a life that does everything right then we repent we turn to Jesus and we say, I need a Savior. I can't do it all right. I believe you came to save me, that you died for my sins. I want to follow you now the best I can. I know that I won't do it the greatest that needs to be done. I need you to hold on to me tight. Please, Jesus, save me and hold on to me. And when we do that, he saves us. It's a promise. He says in Romans 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So when your child trusts Christ as their Savior and they're baptized, you ought to have a party. You ought to be excited. You ought to be very thrilled. You ought to be very happy. It is a very special day. Just don't spike the ball yet. It's not time because the game's not over. This is where number four comes in. The first three, hopefully, were something that you knew already. If you didn't know that already, I urge you this morning to consider what I said. There's a God who is powerful, but he has power over our lives. He made life to be lived in a certain way. We rebelled against him. That means that there has to be punishment, but he loved us so much that he made a way for Jesus to take our punishment for us. And if we would believe him and follow Jesus, then he would forgive us of our sins and he'd be with us forever. Now, that brings us to number four. We must teach our children who they are. We must teach our children who they are in Christ. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean? Who are you? 
Mike Quarrell said, we will always act and behave consistently with who we believe we are. We will always act consistently with who we believe we are. If you believe that you're a sinner, what will you do? Now, this isn't rhetorical. I want to hear the answer. If you believe you're a sinner, then what will you do? You'll sin. You'll sin. Who are we in Christ? Who are we? See, we're not sinners anymore. Will we do things? Yeah, of course we will do things. But that's not who we are. That's not our nature. That's not what we're made to be. In Romans 6, Paul says this, or are you aware, now y'all listen to this. This might be new for some of you. Listen, Paul says, or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Now, there's lots of words. Listen to me. I have this visual in my head. I think in visuals. I, I, I have to see it in order to understand it. And that's why I try to paint word pictures for everybody to see. I'm going to use an illustration here that one or two of you may find offensive because you don't believe in this kind of thing and yada, yada. That's fine. Get over yourself. This is an illustration. It's okay. Now listen to me. This is the way this thing works. Jesus is on the cross. He's alive. He's beaten. He's bloodied. He's bruised. But he's on the cross. He's alive. Paul says that we are baptized into Christ. Baptized means to literally be immersed. That's what makes us Baptist. We believe that you're supposed to be immersed into water when you're baptized. You're raised to new life. The Methodists, they're not called Baptist because they sprinkle. The Lutherans aren't called Baptist because they pour water over the head of a little baby. We're called Baptist because we believe that when you make your profession of faith as a person old enough to know what you're doing, that you will be baptized under the water and you'll be brought back up. You got the image. You're baptized. Paul says that we were baptized, that we were baptized into Christ's death. So here's what I see. Jesus is on the cross. He's hanging there. He's battered. He's bruised and he's bloody, but he's alive. And I see myself being baptized in. I see myself disappearing into Jesus while he's hanging on the cross. Have you got that image in your mind? You see, see me disappearing into Jesus while he's on the cross, while he's hanging here. Now that's not hard to do. If you've seen The Matrix, you saw Neo do that to Mr. Smith. If you have seen the movie Ghost, you saw Patrick Swayze do that to Whoopi Goldberg. If you've seen any of the, late, the latest spiritual TV stuff where they have spirits and possession and all that stuff, you've seen the image. They've made the graphics so you can see that image in your head of you being baptized into Christ as he hangs on the cross. I'm baptized into him. I'm on the cross as he is on the cross. And when he dies, I die. Now see, Paul says that. That's in this scripture. 
We are baptized into his death. We are buried with him by baptism into death. When he died, I died. Do you understand? This is what Paul is telling us. When Jesus died, that I died with him. Now, for what reason? Just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. Just to bring contrast, I want you to hear. Your child, when they are saved, I don't care about them being saved to go to heaven when they die. Do you understand? Being saved to go to heaven when you die is not the purpose of salvation. The purpose of salvation is so this moment you become a new creation, that you are a new person. See, the thing is, you go back and read Ephesians because we've talked about this before, Ephesians 2, as far as God's concerned, you're already in heaven with him now anyway. As far as he's concerned, He looks at you and he sees all time and eternity. He knows where you're going to be. He's not worried about that. What he is doing right this minute is helping you to understand that therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Now, don't miss this. When you, your child, me, trust Christ as our Savior, and we are, we are saved, we are, get ready for it, fancy term, born again. We become new people. We are not sinners anymore. Do you understand me? You're not a sinner anymore because here's the deal. If you're a sinner, you ain't got a prayer. You ain't got a prayer. If you see yourself as a sinner, what do sinners do? They sin. So if I see myself as I'm just a sinner, well, you know what? Anytime I am faced Anytime I am faced with temptation, what I'm going to want to do is remember the rules and live by the rules. And you know what I know about the rules already? I can't do them. I can't do the rules. I don't care how, how good I want to be. I'm telling you, the tight sweater is always going to be stronger than the one that says don't lust. Now, Maybe it's just me and I got got issues with myself, but I know some of your people's story and I know that ain't true. If I'm looking at the sin and that I'm a sinner, I'm not going to make it because I can't do it. But if I'm a new creation, I'm not worried about the rules. I'm not worried about it because I have my eye on the future. I don't have my eye on the past. I'm not looking back at what I was. What I was has been washed away. It's been redeemed. I have a new past in Christ Jesus who is using that to bring me to a better knowledge of him. He's leading me in the future. I'm looking forward to something that I want to be, that someone I want to be like. I want to follow him. I want to do what he's done. I want to be brave like he was brave and wise like he was wise and good like he was good and holy like he was holy and merciful like he was merciful and compassionate like he was compassionate and powerful like he was powerful. I want to be like him. I'm too busy looking forward to worrying about doing any of this other stuff that's out there. That's what we want our children to know. 
so that when they get to college and that person comes up with the knee-high leather boots, they can turn their head saying, I've got a wife that's coming one day. I don't want to mess with this right now because the way God has designed it for it with a man and a woman for life is going to be the best thing that can happen to me. I want what's best. I don't want second best. I'm going for what he's got because he's the one. That's what we want. We want our children to be inoculated as best as they can. Now, they're going to do stupid stuff because they are kids. But you know what? You're going to do stupid stuff because you're an old person. It's just what we do. But even when we do that, that doesn't make me that thing that I said that I was. It makes me, I am a new creation in Christ holy, loved by him, completely blameless in his eyes, never condemned by him ever at all, ever. If you are dead to something, that means that you don't have to do it. The day that I go to do a funeral and the guy in the casket moves, I'm out of there. Every dead person I've ever seen lays very, very still. If I am dead to something, that means that I am not going to do it. You'll be tempted. You'll respond sometimes the way that you always have, and you'll suffer the consequences. But over time, the Holy Spirit will lead us to understand who we are, that we are new, that those things that were once so alluring have lost their luster, and we have a new goal, which is to be like Jesus, who is alive and powerful forever. The message translation of Romans 8 says this. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. I love that statement. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands firm in the line of humanity he restored. We see, stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then, after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had done. Thank you for the amen. And what did he begin? He began to make us children who are free in Jesus. We are free from the bondage of sin. We are free to identify as a child of God, not as an addict, not as a liar, not as a success, not as a failure, not as you'll never do anything right, not as I am a screw up, not as I am the smartest person in the room. We are born again, free children of God. That's who we are. That's what it means to be saved. We have to understand that or the blocks will fall. I ask you this morning, are you free in Jesus? Are you saved, but you never realized that you're free? Are you saved, but you've always thought that I'm just a sinner? That I'm saved, but I'm a sinner? Do you understand this morning that no, you're not? That no, you're not. 
And, 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 and you can't say that you have a sin nature. You don't have a sin nature. When you were born again, your old nature was stripped out. A new nature was given to you. You've still got the flesh that remembers the bad stuff and how to live wrong. But your nature now is to be like Jesus. Do you understand that this morning? I pray that you do. I pray that you do. And if you've never trusted Jesus to save you in the first place, I beg you this morning to trust Jesus, to be born again, to be set free. We're going to sing in just a few moments. We'll ask you to stand then, and I'll invite you. If you have never trusted Jesus, come and tell me that you want to trust him as your Savior. If you want to join the church, you can come do that. If you want to pray, you can come and do that. But now is the time to decide what is it that I want to do with Jesus. Y'all pray with me. Father, I pray. I pray, Father, that, that, that the folks in this room won't, won't, that it's not, they don't have to wait 63 years to understand that they're free. Lord, we've, we've done good things teaching our children, but we've, we've left them defenseless. We've got them to the point where they understand you as Savior, but we've not let them know that they're not bound to sin anymore. That there's a broader goal, that it doesn't make them a holy roller that rolls on the floor and says, praise Jesus every time you meet somebody and every third word's hallelujah. It makes them people who are free to be alive. Father, show us. Open our eyes and open our ears. How long, Lord, do many of us have to walk in bondage? This morning, I pray that you move in our hearts. Help us to know. Thank you for forgiving us. And thank you for forgiving us for all of our sins, past, present, and future. That forever we will be your children. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Y'all stand with me.